Kia ora tātou. My name is Peter Saxton, my pronouns are he, him. And so I'll be talking about blood donation policy tonight, um, but specifically how we can make the blood supply safe for recipients, um, sustainable for our needs as a country, um, and also inclusive um, of people who want to participate in blood donation. I think off the bat, we can all relate to the need to have a safe blood supply. So any of us um, coming to the venue tonight could have been involved in a serious accident, um, maybe in a car or our bike, um, ended up at Auckland City Hospital in the emergency ward, um, needing blood urgently and in a very vulnerable position. And so we would want to know that that blood that was about to be transfused um, did not have any serious uh, transfusion transmissible infections in it. Um, at the same time, um, we also probably know people who would like to donate blood, and perhaps um, that's ourselves, or people that we know in our whanau or family, uh, who are prevented from donating blood, and what we call deferred from donating blood for a period of time, or perhaps even lifetime. Um, and banned, exactly. So, um, in that case, people might be very passionate about donating blood, they might want to um, help others, um, they might want to give their, their gift of blood, um, and are denied. And so that can seem to, um, to a lot of people to be unfair, um, to be unnecessary and perhaps overbroad. So I, we've got this moral balancing act between keeping the blood supply safe, um, but also sustainable and inclusive of people who, who want to donate blood. And of course we need blood, so the New Zealand Blood Service needs blood, it needs blood for um, surgery, it needs blood for cancer treatments, um, and some quick stats, so about 4.5% of New Zealanders are registered blood donors. Uh, and every year about 100,000 people donate blood. So if you can think of Eden Park, uh, filled to capacity twice, that's about the number of people who are donating blood each year. So you know, we've got some needs, and, and sometimes we don't have enough. So you might have heard uh, just a few months ago that the blood service was short of a positive blood, right? So there are some shortages sometimes. And at the same time that we hear that there are some shortages, we, we hear of um, groups who are deferred, um, that seem unusual. So, for example, currently in New Zealand, um, if you're a man who has anal or oral sex with another man, with or without a condom, you can't donate blood for three months. And so that scratches our heads. That seems a little bit unusual, because if these men are at low risk, we could add up to 35,000 people to the donor pool. So there is, there is this balancing act, and it's a really topical question. It's also highly controversial. So not just here in Aotearoa, this is a debate that... Um, uh, raises passions right around the world, and it's also a very dynamic space. So we've seen quite a few countries change their blood donor policy um, in the last few years. And so I guess the question for us here in Aotearoa is, you know, should we change our blood donor policy? Um, um, if so, what should we change it to? So I'll be really interested at the end of tonight whether you think our current policy is justified, um, if it should change, and if so, what it should change to. But first of all, a bit of whakawhanangatanga, a bit about me. So I'm um, trained in epidemiology, which is the um, study of epidemics, the distribution and determinants of disease in humans. Um, and also I work in public health, which is the science and art of preventing disease, um, promoting well-being and prolonging life through the organised efforts of society. So I guess from that, it speaks to a focus on populations uh, rather than individuals. Um, and so a lot of our work is, is quite action-focused. We, um, we use our findings to help um, policy makers and people um, make decisions. 
Um, my own research interests are in HIV prevention and um, health equity for rainbow populations. So what that looks like, I've designed the country's behavioural surveillance systems for HIV. I work in HIV epidemiology. I work in prevention technologies like PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. I've worked on HPV and gonorrhea vaccines. Um, and very shortly, I'm sure I'm going to be pulled into monkeypox. So that's a bit about what I'm doing. I identify as a cisgendered gay man. Um, my dad was a journalist in Taranaki, and I guess I get um, my curiosity from his side. My mum came from a farm in Denmark, um, emigrated um, to Taranaki as well, and she worked in tourist information sites around the country. So I might get her sense of wanting to help others from that. I've uh, advised the blood service um, independently, so I'm an external independent expert to the blood service uh, from the university. Um, I don't work for them, but I certainly work um, with them. So I guess my, my lens that I bring into this work is both in the HIV risk space, but also the, the health and inclusion of rainbow communities. And I guess in the, this question of blood donor policy, um, those two arms of my work actually almost seem to collide or be in, in conflict. So I, I find this a really fascinating uh, policy question. It's also um, very topical. So, in fact, we've just finished our largest ever HP prevention study called SPOTS, the um, Sex and Prevention of Transmission Study. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. You might have seen it in the media. Um, you might have seen these posters around um, town or on digital spaces. So we're excited about that. We've just had um, 4,000 people almost. And on Grinder, and on Pornhub, not that you'd know. <laughs> so we had almost 4,000 people take part um, in an anonymous uh, survey about um, their, their sex lives, safe sex, and we also invited them to provide a drug blood spot that we will send to a lab and test for undiagnosed HIV, Hep C and syphilis. And we'll combine those results and hopefully use it to inform um, the next generation of blood donor policy. So it's incredibly topical. Um, so I'm going to structure this, this talk in four parts, roughly. First of all, what we'd call the epidemiological um, conundrum. So what do we know about HIV that's relevant and why are some groups more at risk? Next, what I might call the, um, I guess, the social conundrum. So why do some people want to donate blood and what are the harms from being um, prohibited from donating blood? Then the, the blood donation and blood safety conundrum, drawing those two parts together. And finally, some questions about what might come next. So what might um, some good ideas be about what future blood donation policy could look like um, in our country? So first of all, um, this epidemiological conundrum. So I'm sure you're all aware that HIV has been entwined so closely with this idea of blood donation for a very long time. So AIDS was first noticed in 1981, just over 40 years ago. Um, it was reported in the very cheerily named Mortality Morbidity Weekly Report. It's like a bit of a zine for epidemiologists. Um, and it reported uh, five cases of, of, of rare cancers in otherwise healthy young gay men in California. So the, the same concentration in time, person and place. And that's the sort of thing that gets epidemiologists really excited um, and, um, and um, anxious. So. Very early on, in fact, um, it was called GRID, or Gay-Related Immune De Deficiency Syndrome. Um, uh, for a period, it was referred to as the 5H disease, so homosexuals, haemophiliacs, uh, hookers, heroin addicts, and Haitians. 
Um, but it was noticed that you know, we, we, we need to call it something else because it wasn't um, uh, limited to one population group. So very soon it was called AIDS, Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. Um, and then, um, but we still didn't know what caused it. It wasn't until 1983 that the causative agent was discovered, which was a virus. So we called it human immunodeficiency virus. We knew what caused AIDS. Um, but it wasn't until two years after that that we had the first tests. So in 1985, we had the first HIV tests. And of course, um, until then, um, we had no way of screening the blood supply for HIV. So um, these were very dark times. Uh, an awful lot of people around the world contracted HIV through blood services and blood transfusion. Um, and because of this, um, gay men were heavily stigmatised because they were seen to have been responsible for this. And so again, very dark times. Um, and this idea of gay men's blood being bad or tainted um, started to emerge. Um, so it raises the questions, why are gay men and other groups um, more represented in HIV? And so one way of looking at this is to look at qualities of, of the pathogen or the virus itself, qualities of behaviours and then qualities of, of connectivity, what, what binds us together. So how is HIV transmitted? Let's do a bit of audience participation. See if you can be better than my first year students. So say um, tonight you're so impassioned by this talk, um, you hook up with someone here that you might not have known, you go home, you have sexual intercourse, um, but neither of you uses um, prevention tools, you don't use condoms, you don't use PrEP, you're not on treatment. Um, <clears throat> and that one act of, of intercourse um, results in transmission. So say your partner had HIV and didn't know it. So what is the chance that from that one act, um, you have acquired HIV. I'll give you three options, we'll have a, a, um, a raise of hands. So the first option is, um, it's, it's very likely, so maybe uh, over 80% chance on that one occasion you'll acquire HIV. Second option, maybe it's 50-50. Um, the third option, it's, it's, it's very unlikely and more like 1%. So in that order, who's for highly likely? Above 80%, raise of hands. Oh gosh, a small number, how about 50-50? A few more hands. What about um, very unlikely, about 1%? Wow, okay, okay you're, you're beating my first year students. A very well-informed audience. So for those listening to RNZ at home, um, most of our audience tonight got that right. So that's right, so HIV is actually quite an inefficiently transmitted virus. Um, in fact, it's around 1% or less, and it does depend on, on the type of, of act. But we need to know more than this to understand spread. So in fact, um, HIV is only possibly transmitted via a very narrow range of behaviours. Um, and they tend to be um, penetrative sexual intercourse, blood, blood, or, or injecting, um, or mother-child transmission through breastfeeding. In fact, it's not transmitted efficiently via other ways that we, we, we're used to hearing. So it's not airborne like COVID. Um, it's not like um, HPV, human papillomavirus, which is transmitted just by touch. It's not like, it's not vector-borne um, like malaria by mosquitoes. Um, it's not like monkeypox, which is close contact, and we need to learn more about that. So, um, so it's only possible through a narrow range of activities, um, and when we're thinking about that narrow range, in fact, the probability of transmission per act also varies quite a lot. So at the very um, low end of the spectrum, thinking about oral sex, um, virtually no potential for transmission. It's only really if you have sores, open wounds in your mouth. Um, and that's, I think, surprises some people. Um, it's because there aren't a number of cells in the mouth that HIV likes to infect. 
and there are also some properties of saliva that disrupt um, transmission processes um, for HIV. So oral sex, carry on, don't worry about HIV. Um, vaginal sex, in fact, it's about 0.1% per act, so that's about one in a thousand. Um, uh, receptive anal sex is about 1.4%. So receptive anal sex is about 18 times more efficient at transmitting HIV than receptive vaginal sex. Now the reason for that um, is not because of trauma, that's a very outdated idea. In fact, um, the, way, the reason why receptive anal intercourse is, is, is higher risk is because of the concentration of cells that HIV likes to infect in the rectal compartment. And then the proximity of the rectal compartment to parts of our gut where our immune system is concentrated. So this is really bad luck um, for, for gay, bisexual, and other men, men who, who, and other people for whom anal intercourse is an important way of having intimacy. So RNZ is recording this, aren't they? Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so, um, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, though, um, is, is blood transfusion. So while most sexual practices carry a very low probability of per contact, um, blood donation or, or transfusion is about 92%. So if you're transfused blood that has HIV in it, it's almost certain that you will contract it. So, so quite a variety in, in probabilities. Um, but, but generally inefficient. So it kind of raises the question, why have 84 million people contracted HIV um, globally since the epidemic began? Um, and that, of course, is because we don't just have these acts once. They're, they're all pleasurable, um, they, um, they're about intimacy, they're about enjoyment, um, they're important things that we as humans like to do. It's about sex, it's about reproduction, it's about using drugs. So it's no surprise that we repeat these things, and, and they're very hard to budge. It's, so campaigns in the old days that told people to not do these activities um, worked really poorly, in fact, better ways were to modify practices to include different prevention devices, and that's been incredibly successful. Um, but we're still talking about individual transmission. Say someone contracts HIV, how would we detect that? When someone acquires HIV, um, they experience what's called the acute phase. So in the early ramp-up phase, which might last a few weeks or months, there's a very high increase in the level of virus in their system, um, which actually makes someone up to 26 times more infectious than those per contact risks that we've just talked about. So of course this early phase, when someone's unaware they have HIV, um, they've got high levels of virus in their body, um, they're much more likely to transmit HIV you know, unwittingly onto a new sexual partner, and they, they probably don't experience symptoms as well. This is really important when we're thinking about detection, because as you'll know with COVID, um, our tests detect markers of infection. For HIV, that's either antibodies or parts of the, the virus itself, nucleic acid. And those only appear uh, a little bit of time after infection. So in fact, um, they take time to appear, um, and even the top quality tests, the state-of-art tests, um, might not detect um, HIV for a number of days or even weeks. And so that's really critical when we're thinking about um, using testing as a prevention tool, but also using testing to inform um, blood safety. But that's still about individual level spread. What about population spread? How do we get transmission from a few individuals um, out into communities and whole populations? And why is it that we tend to see HIV much more commonly in some um, communities um, and not in others? And that, of course, includes gay men. One of the most important things is 
reminding ourselves of that low per contact transmissibility of HIV. And what we, we're all familiar with COVID is this concept of the reproductive rate or R0. So you're all experts in what this means. Um, of course, R0 relates to the idea of how many secondary contacts um, a pathogen is transmitted to on average over the infectious period from someone with that infection. So we can think of R0 being less than one, in which case people with the infection pass it on average to less than one people over their um, infectious lifespan. And if it's less than one, it fades away. If R0 is equal to one, each person on average transmits to one other person um, and the virus becomes endemic. Um, and if it's greater than one, then um, it gets transmitted to more than one person and we see potentially explosive epidemics. What's often not mentioned uh, is in fact it's R0 over people's infectious lifespan. So we can think about COVID. Um, what was the infectious lifespan for COVID? It was originally about 14 days. Um, it actually still is, but now we sort of moved it down to 10 because we wanted to get out, and then seven because we we're really impatient. Um, but but so, so, our, so the reproductive rate with COVID was over that period. With other pathogens like gonorrhea or chlamydia, it's a bit longer, it might be over three months. Um, but of course with HIV, um, in the absence of treatments, it's, it's up to 10 or 12 years. So, so to sustain epidemics of HIV in the early days, you know, pre-treatments, all that we had to see was one person transmitting to one other person over 10 or 12 years for, for that epidemic to be sustained. So um, in order to do that, we have to think really carefully about connectivity. So with low per contact viruses like HIV, they only become R0 greater than one if we have high levels of connectivity across our communities. And that's why we only see um, HIV transmitted in some populations uh, rather than others who exhibit those qualities. So when we think about connectivity, there's a number of ways we can conceptualize this and define it and describe it. I often hear people talk about the average number of sexual contacts as being a good measure. Um, in fact, it's not. What's much more interesting is what statisticians will call the, the tail of the distribution. So um, how many people occupy that sort of tail end of um, people who have or a smaller number but have a very high number of contacts per unit of time. So what we call the tail or the variance. And why that's important is because people who have a high number of contacts per unit of time um, are connectors. They're people who connect um, communities together. And we can start to visualize this because it affects what we might describe as the architecture of connectivity in different communities, the architecture of communities. And so we can illustrate this by an example. We can take two hypothetical communities um, and let's imagine maybe sort of a, a web of contacts, a web of contacts, um, maybe the same number of people in each community, um, but in one community you have a very low proportion with um, high numbers of contacts and they might sort of visually look like a starburst. And there might be two of them. In another community, um, again, most people might have small numbers of contacts, but there's a, there's a higher proportion um, who have high numbers of contacts represented by starbursts. And this is really important, because if you imagine um, a, a pathogen um, uh, invading those two communities and starting to move about, in this community on where there's a high number of those sort of starburst, highly connected people, um, it's not long before it finds those individuals and that infection is dispersed around that network. And then again, it finds someone else and is dispersed around that network. Whereas in another community where that's, that's much rarer, 
um, it's much harder for a low per contact transmissibility pathogen to do that. And we, we tend to see that fizzle out over time, what we call decaying chains of transmission. And we see this even over 40 years. So we can take two, two hypothetical communities with those two qualities, um, constant reseeding of infection, um, constant fizzling out and not catch, catching, whereas it, it, it establishes you know, quite efficiently in the other community. So that's a really important concept and, and understanding um, why we see low per contact pathogens um, survive in, in, in those types of fertile environments. And that's a kind of a framework or, or concept that you can take forward into, into understanding other infectious diseases. So for example, when we're thinking of, um, let's say, gonorrhea or chlamydia, it's, um, it's much more transmissible than HIV, so it will survive in um, much more moderate levels of connectivity. So we can think of young people or university students, raise your hand, don't raise, get tested. Um, we can think about much more efficiently transmitted viruses like HPV, in which case that survives in, in communities with even low rates of, of contact. So in the absence of vaccination for HPV, that's why about 80% of all of us in this room would come into contact with HPV and potentially develop cancers um, of the cervix and the rectum, penis, and, and oropharyngeal uh, cancers. So, so this is a really useful um, concept of um, thinking about infectivity and thinking about the types of communities in which um, those pathogens will survive. So it's this, I guess, ecological relationship between those three things, between a pathogen, the behaviours, um, and the community. And so, yes, it's true that HIV is a virus and, and can um, infect anyone. Um, we only see sustained, sustained bread in some communities. So what is the New Zealand situation then? Well, in fact, we have a proud record of HIV control in Aotearoa. So we have what's described as a low-level concentrated epidemic and, and defined subgroups. And that's based on some um, incredible work um, in the 1980s where we responded early, we put um, most affected groups in charge of the response, we changed laws to make um, it easier for groups most at risk to protect themselves and remove barriers to prevention, and then we sustained that for a long time. Um, and so this was, this was pretty world-beating um, um, responses, particularly in the law reform space. So we can think of homosexual law reform in 86, we can think of um, needle insurance exchange programs in 1987, which were a world first. So the publicly funded needle insurance exchange programs were a world first in New Zealand. Um, Decriminalisation of um, sex work in 2003. Um, Human Rights Act in 1993, which outlawed discrimination. So all of these contributed to a much more uh, protective social environment. Um, and as a consequence, we've done exceptionally well. We have virtually no HIV epidemic in sex workers and people who inject drugs, and that's an absolute world-beating result that we should all be really proud of. Um, um, but it is concentrated in, um, in, in men who have sex with men in New Zealand, and we can describe that in a number of ways. So um, MSM um, comprise about, um, I guess, 60 to 90% of all locally acquired HIV diagnoses each year. Um, and that's um, on the basis of only comprising about 2 to 3% of the male population. So um, majority of transmissions from a very small group. If you do the maths, of course, that, that means that there's enormous inequity here. So in fact, gay and bisexual men, takatapoi, other MSM, are about 350 times 
more likely to acquire HIV than other groups in New Zealand. So not 10, not 20, but 350 times. It's an enormous inequity. Um, and we've done studies that um, look at this um, in, in more depth. So in 2011, um, I led our first community study looking at actual um, rates of HIV. So we went um, around Tamaki Makoto, we went to bars like this, we went to community events, um, we asked people to do a survey and then provide a specimen. And we found that about 1 in 20 of our participants um, had HIV, about 6%. And of them, about 1 in 5 were living with undiagnosed HIV. So 1 in 5 did not know at the time that they had HIV. We looked a little bit more closely at those characteristics. And in fact, it was quite surprising. We found that many, in fact, were in relationships. We found that um, several had tested for HIV quite recently, tested negative, obviously. Um, some didn't have that many sexual partners recently. And when we asked them, um, how sure are you about your HIV status right now? Um, well over two-thirds said, I'm absolutely negative, absolutely negative. So, you know, this has really important implications for safe sex education, of course, about not making assumptions about yourself or your partner, but also things like blood donation policy, because people, even who genuinely believe they're at low risk, that might not be true in communities where HIV is more common. So the data is all completely consistent. It points to a picture of concentrated epidemic of HIV amongst gay and bisexual men, but it's much more concentrated than I think a lot of people believe. And that has, of course, implications for, for policy like, like blood donation, as, as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but that's, so that, that's where we're at. But the good news is in 2015, everything changed. So 2015 is the moment that we describe as the HIV prevention revolution. And that comprises a number of really important innovations. So first of all, in 2015, we um, recommended that people um, with HIV were diagnosed as early as possible and offered treatment as early as possible. And these were phenomenally exciting experiments and studies. So we found that, in fact, if this was true, if you had HIV, were diagnosed early. So you can imagine a 20-year-old, if you diagnose that 20-year-old with HIV early, um, offer them treatments, um, the treatments are infected within six months, their viral load becomes undetectable. Um, they can expect to live um, the same lifespan as anybody else without HIV. In fact, some really great studies from Denmark, which is where my mum was from, uh, which suggested, in fact, people on, with HIV under care might even have longer life expectancy because, of course, if you're under active follow-up, you might have um, other conditions diagnosed early and you're under active care. So great news for people living with HIV. The other part of that is by being on treatment and reducing your viral load, you become sexually non-infectious to your sexual partners. What we call undetectable equals untransmissible. And again, there's a really exciting study called Partner 2, which confirmed this. It took 782 um, couples, um, one of whom had HIV that was treated um, and immune suppressed, the other HIV negative, what we call serodiscordant couples. And we followed those couples over time. They reported um, 76,000 acts of condomless sex. And how many HIV transmissions do you think we found? Yeah, zero. So 78,000, 76,000 um, condomless sex acts between serodiscordant couples, one on treatment, not a single case of HIV transmission. So fantastic data. Um, this is not our study, I should just clarify, it was an international study, but, but incredibly exciting for everyone. So that, that, that first initiative. And then we decided that 
Um, in fact, we could use the same treatments to offer to people without HIV, but at high risk in the form of PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, so that is taking a prevention pill every day um, or, or per protocol, um, and that will protect someone um, by up to 99%. So incredibly exciting new intervention technology for people at high risk of HIV. And of course, condoms still work brilliantly. They are still the bedrock of prevention in many contexts. So um, you know, th there is no way that HIV can pass through the intact walls of a latex condom. Um, and so if they're used consistently correctly, they also work really well. And we have all sorts of innovations happening in the testing space with home testing, rapid testing, peer testing. So we now actually have all the tools needed to eliminate the epidemic in New Zealand. You know, this is a fantastic moment. Um, and gay and bisexual men are highly engaged in this. We have a, a very high rate of scientific literacy in our communities. We have excellent community campaigns by organisations like the Burnett Foundation, previously the New Zealand AIDS Foundation. And you might have seen on Saturday night, the Prime Minister and Minister of Health launched the HIV Action Plan, an ambitious goal to eliminate HIV in Aotearoa in 10 years' time. So there's an enormous amount of movement in the space, and because of all these technologies, in fact, we've seen some fantastic results. So in 2016, we had, in fact had the highest number of um, HIV diagnosed in New Zealand. So this is 30 years after the epidemic landed here, right? 2016 was the highest number ever. Five years later, we had the lowest in 20 years. So the impact of these new prevention technologies is really profound. But that's why we call it the epidemiological conundrum. So we know that some groups uh, have a relatively higher risk of HIV, but they also tend to be groups who are highly engaged in prevention, who are um, behaving in ways that are very protective and probably feel safe themselves. And those two things can be in conflict. So the epidemiological conundrum. Okay, so next, the social conundrum. So, you know, gay men are aware of the higher risk of HIV. You know, again, we have excellent campaigns, raising awareness, excellent education campaigns in Aotearoa. So why do many gay men believe that they ought to date blood, given they know that they are at higher risk? And why do many feel that this is um, not only unfair, but perhaps discriminatory and unscientific? Well, many gay men, um, like everyone else, want to date blood. You know, we all want to help other people. We want to give this gift of blood. We want to behave in ways that are altruistic. We know that every blood that's donated will be transfused to up to three people, and that could save their life. So, you know, we want to do our civic duty um, and play our part in helping others. But there are some um, reasons that people um, have suggested capture this quite, quite well. And the first is, well, is it discriminatory? Well, in fact, there's no right to donate. There is a right to health, so there's a right to receive blood products, but there's no actual right, legal right to donate. The Human Rights Commission does receive complaints about this um, um, every year, and the blood service receives complaints as well. Um, in fact, the, I think it's the Bill of Rights Act um, permits um, individual rights um, to be limited um, in the interests of broader society in certain circumstances. Um, but if it does so, um, those limitations must be the least restrictive possible to achieve those outcomes. Um, but on the face of it, there's no, at the moment, legal basis for a case of discrimination. But what about social exclusion? Society places quite a high moral value on donating blood. So, in fact, we can imagine that people who donate blood um, are located qualities as... Um, 
compassionate people, as people who are generous, as people who want to help others, as people who are altruistic. And so if those qualities are located in people who can donate blood, it follows that if you prevent communities from donating blood, you're denying them access to those benefits, those social goods, those social benefits. Um, and that, that could create harm. For example, we all know that rainbow communities more broadly have a history of exclusion from really important um, social um, and political institutions and even families. And that exclusion or lack of inclusion can lead to mental health, poor mental health. So perhaps there is something here in this idea of being prevented from enjoying the social benefits um, from donating blood. What about actual harm? Well, I think there's a case here too. So in fact, when um, people turn up um, to blood centres wanting to donate, um, they fill in their donor questionnaire and they're excluded. Um, they might walk out there and their, their workmates, their school friends, their family, their whanau might ask them, well, why, why, you know, why haven't you donated? Why couldn't you donate? Why haven't you got the bandage on your arm? And people who have been deferred, I guess, have a couple of options there. Um, you could come out. You could say, well, I've been deferred because I'm gay. Um, and if you come out, you risk um, outing yourself, um, you risk exclusion, you risk prejudice, you might even risk violence. Um, or you could lie. You know, and neither of those two outcomes are acceptable. So people who are presenting um, to help others should not be at risk of, of harm in that circumstance. So that, I think, is, is also quite a compelling um, reason. And these aren't just hypothetical. So you might remember in 2016, um, the Pulse nightclub in Florida in the United States, a terrorist um, murdered 49 gay men and their friends. Um, and the next day, the gay community in, in Florida lined up to donate blood to some of the 53 survivors, and they weren't allowed to. Um, because at the time, the US had a policy of permanent deferral um, for men who had sex with men. So that kind of re-triggered everyone. It was revisiting that discrimination back onto the community. I mean, again, MSM gay men are highly engaged in these issues. You know, we want to see policies that are fair, that are rational, that are proportional, and you know, particularly in Aotearoa, that reflect our standing internationally as a progressive nation. You know, we do human rights well, we have an excellent record internationally, and this seems to butt up against that. And I think that some gay men also smell a rat. They think it's a bit more than this. Is it, in fact, a reflection of some underlying prejudice? Um, it goes beyond being unfair that needs to be fixed. For example, you know, gay men are adhering to safe sex advice. They are using condoms, they are using PrEP, they are using treatments to reduce their infectivity. In fact, they're doing safe sex at rates much higher than their heterosexual friends. And yet they're told by blood services that in fact their blood is not safe. And that, that is really um, dissonant. So this is important because when a community feels that um, the advice they're receiving from trusted community organisations like the Burnett Foundation about what safe sex is and what safe sex isn't, and that seems to um, conflict with what government policy looks like. Um, you know, people's eyebrows raise and they want to start ask, asking questions, and, and I think for very good reasons. Okay, so um, blood safety. What is the conundrum here? Finally, you say blood safety. Well, um, it brings us back to this idea of, of how does the blood service keep the blood supply safe? 
has New Zealand's policies ever shown signs of change? Well, it has. So in 2008, we moved from a 10-year deferral for men of six with men to, to five years. In 2014, we moved from um, five years to 12 months. In December 2020, we moved from 12 months to three months. So there has been progression over time. Um, in response to international developments, changes in testing technology, um, and processes that lie behind blood safety. So there has been change. And in fact, New Zealand has one of the safest blood supplies in the world. So since 1985, when we had testing, there's been not a single transmission of HIV to a recipient, which is a fantastic record. So why do we have deferral at all then? And this is a question I get asked a lot. Why don't we just rely on testing? Why is deferral part of the picture? Well, we know that in New Zealand, um, all blood that's donated is in fact tested. In fact, we test every single donation, what's called IDNAT, so individual donor nucleic acid amplification testing. So every, every donated blood is tested. But if we remember back, we know that the tests are imperfect. So there's always a small but not a zero chance that if someone has a very recently acquired infection, what we call an incident infection, in the last week or so, there is a chance that, that testing won't detect that infection. And if that's true in, a, in blood that's been donated, um, that donation can be donated to up to three people, and they, those three people will almost certainly acquire that HIV. So these are really quite high stakes. So again, remember back to our previous example, some of you have hooked up tonight um, as a result of this talk. Um, you've had con condomless sex. One of you has acquired HIV tonight. Um, and then you go to the blood service on Saturday and you donate blood. There is a high chance that that, that that infected blood won't be detected and it will be transfused. So these are really quite important issues. So consequently, the probability of someone presenting with a, an undiagnosed incident infection in the very early stages of transmission is really important to blood services. And so in addition to the testing, they also have deferral of groups who are more likely to have an undiagnosed incident infection. Of course, that includes groups at higher risk like gay men, um, but other groups like people who um, have had a tattoo in the case of HBV infection, sex workers, people who have had sex in, in other countries where HIV is more common. So we, we look at groups based on our own epidemiology of HIV and have defined those deferral policies on that basis. And that those two things, so testing and deferral, are only just two parts of a much broader system. So again, with COVID, you'll all be familiar with the Swiss cheese model of health protection. It's not just one intervention, which always has a small risk of error. It's layering multiple interventions on top of each other, uh, in that way preventing pathogens from entering um, the blood supply. So of course, in, in addition to deferring people, we promote the grounds for deferral so people don't turn up at blood centres themselves. And at the other end, we have treatment processes for some blood that can disrupt the process of being infectious. So again, a multi-layered approach to blood safety. But what about some, some challenges to this policy? Um, first of all, is it singling out gay men? Well, in fact, in New Zealand, 20% of first-time donors are deferred for a bunch of reasons. Like I said, having a tattoo, um, in fact, um, having been sick recently, um, monkeypox is probably going to be added to that list very shortly. Um, Travelling to parts of the world where HIV is more common. So there are some, some other groups who are deferred. Is there differential treatment um, consistently applied across all groups? 
Well, we know that um, other groups in New Zealand um, have a similar rate of HIV to gay men. For example, if you've migrated from sub-Saharan Africa recently, or you've had sex in sub-Saharan Africa, because HIV is much more common there, you're also deferred, because the prevalence of HIV is around 5 or 6% in both groups. So in that sense, in fact, there is equality in the discrimination. Um, we do apply those policies consistently. Is it proportional? Well, yes. In fact, we know internationally people who inject drugs are at much higher risk of blood-borne infections. So in New Zealand, the deferment for people who inject drugs is not three months, it's still lifetime. So there does seem to be a proportional um, relationship between the level of risk and the amount of deferment. Is it scientifically justified? And this, I think, is where we need to focus our attention really closely. So we've heard about the epidemiology of HIV. That seems to make sense. We've heard about anal sex. That's a very high-risk activity. Um, the addition of condoms as a requirement um, seems a little bit unusual because condoms work, but I guess condoms can break, and that might not be noticed. So I guess that's why condoms are there as well. But there is a problem with oral sex. The inclusion of oral sex is really problematic because we know that that's not a high risk for HIV. In fact, um, determining this is a real problem for um, study design, it's really hard to find people who have acquired HIV and only had oral sex for the last five years. Um, you have to go back a very long time to some studies in the early 80s and 90s to find examples, but ironically, when they've gone back and re-interviewed some of these people, they've subsequently disclosed anal sex, and they didn't disclose that at the time because it's heavily stigmatised, right? So um, this is a real design problem for understanding how low the risk of oral sex is. But look, I think we all agree in the HIV prevention space that it isn't a risk, and the, the presence of oral sex in the deferment rules really smacks it out as being unscientific, and I think it's a, a rightful place for people to focus their attention. Um, and of course, gay men know that the advice that they've received from trusted organisations around safe sex is not reflected in some of these guidelines. So why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because if parts of the community perceive that an institution is not behaving rationally or scientifically, it loses trust in that organisation. It increases the risk that it won't abide by the rules. And this is a serious problem for blood services around the world. So if their policies aren't perceived to be fair, it increases the chance that people will just ignore the rules um, and donate their blood anyway, because they genuinely believe that their blood is safe. And in fact, many people interpret the blood donor questionnaire to simply be asking, is my blood safe? Um, and as we've seen, that can be quite problematic in some people's cases. So, so non-compliance is a really big problem for blood services around the world, and it means that in addition to the science, in addition to the epidemiology, blood services have to keep a finger on the pulse of public attitudes and, and social pressures. Because if, if the level of distrust grows to the point where people start um, ignoring the rules, um, people, some people could turn up with donated blood that contains undiagnosed HIV, and that will be transfused to vulnerable recipients. So this is a really pressing question for blood services. So lastly, what should we do about this? Okay, well, the good news is the blood service is totally on board with this. I work closely with the New Zealand Blood Service. They want to improve their policy. They want people who pre present a low risk um, to donate blood and to do so um, without any um, social pressures. 
they know that the policy isn't socially sustainable at the moment, and they know that if we can identify low or no-risk gay and bisexual men, we could have up to 35,000 extra donors. So what might some of those options look like? And there are five brief options. First of all, what about a gender and, and sexuality neutral policy? So it doesn't ask about people's sexuality. Well, in fact, this is what exactly the UK has just struck um, in the last year. So in the UK, it's changed its policy. You will only be referred if you've had um, anal intercourse with a new or multiple partners in the last three months. Anal intercourse with a new or multiple partners, um, whether, no matter your gender identity or your sexuality. So heterosexual women with those characteristics would be deferred. So that means that um, you know, monogamous gay men um, in exclusive relationships, um, even if they're having anal sex, will be able to donate in the UK right now. So more gay men will be able to donate. Um, the flip side, fewer, probably lower-risk heterosexuals will be able to donate. So there is a trade-off here of, of, of allowing more um, previously deferred groups to donate, but um, fewer people who, who previously were able to donate can do so now. So that's one option. What about more individualised risk policies? So you can imagine use an electronic questionnaire and be asked much more prying questions about your sex life. So what about, what exactly are you doing with this partner and maybe that partner? What types of prevention tools are you using? Well, that's an option, um, but would it be acceptable? So there's a trade-off between more invasive questioning, allowing some people to donate, but you're giving up some privacy. So there's a real question around that policy too. What about shorter deferral periods? Can we reduce the three-month deferral to maybe two months, one month, or, or two weeks? So we've heard that the state-of-the-art HIV tests can detect an HIV beyond eight days. Why don't we just have an eight-day deferral? Well, as we've seen, there is some, um, I guess, risk around those estimates that, in fact, some people will take longer for those markers of infection to show. And in fact, if we have a really tight period, it also risks um, some people misremembering when they did something. So for that reason, blood services tend to build in a bit more redundancy and tend to prefer having a bit more of a conservative um, deferral period. Um, and second to last, what about treating the blood that gay men donate differently? And this is in fact happening in France. So in France at the moment, if a gay man wants to donate, their donation is um, put on ice, it's frozen, and then one month later, their, their second donation is tested. And if that second donation is negative, um, the blood service in France will release both of those donations because they know the first one um, wasn't in the window period. So again, more people can donate, um, but the optics of that aren't great for gay men either. And in fact, in France, there's been a bit of pushback because it's still treating gay men's blood differently. So maybe that will work, but there's a trade-off too. And finally, um, could blood services harmonise policies around the world and move away from this concept of relative risk, which in New Zealand is really problematic because if you have an absence of HIV in most of the community and some HIV in the gay community, the relative risk will always be really high, right? 350 times is a really big multiplier. But what about absolute per contact risk? In fact, this is what's happening in some um, blood services. The UK have estimated that Maybe a goal is to reduce the risk of a blood donation with HIV being transmitted below one in a million. So if in fact, if a change in policy results in less than one in a million transmissions having HIV, 
that is an acceptable level of risk. And that's because there is no such thing as eliminating risk in blood safety. The aim is to minimise risk, but not eliminate it. So maybe less than one in a million is an idea, and in fact, they think at the moment they've got less than one in five million. So those are some options, um, and I'm really keen to hear about your, um, your reactions to that. So going back to my initial question, um, how many of us feel that the current policy um, is somewhat justified. So the current policy in New Zealand, which is um, gay and bisexual men who have anal or oral sex um, with or without a condom are deferred from donating blood in the last three months. That's the current policy. Defend? Some? Yeah. So, so, so some believe the science is still good and, and firm, given the risks to recipients. Um, how many believe it's, it's unjustified and unscientific? Okay, a few, few more. Okay, a little bit more. Okay, and any preferences for any of those policies? So anyone feel that um, the policy where we put gay blood on ice would be a good idea? Some? Okay. What about a shorter deferral period? Some? Um, a few more? Okay. What about an idea of a much more individualised, personalised donor experience? Okay, so, so a lot of you are willing to trade off quite a lot of privacy um, for the right to donate. Okay. That's really That's my talk. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Question time. Both in Aotearoa and elsewhere, what's the impact of the different forms of discrimination that you're talking about on gay men's willingness to actually even be interested in donating blood in the first place? Mm. The history of, of not being able to donate, I think, has had a, a long-standing impact on, on trust in, the, in blood services, not just here but internationally. And so when we see blood services change policy, there hasn't always been a rush to donate. And in fact, if we look at the general population, it's only 4.5% are registered donors. So 4.5% you know, of you know, 35,000, maybe 1,700 people, uh, if it's the same rate, would, would be gained by, by a more liberal policy. So, but it's a real question as, as to where we even see those numbers. When we've done um, research on this, in fact, I've got a PhD student in the room who just published a paper on this based on um, a few years ago. So this is under the 12-month deferral policy, not the current one. Um, we found that in Aotearoa, um, most of our respondents um, felt that the policy was highly discriminatory um, and um, it raised real questions as to whether they would be prepared to engage and in, in, in cause to donate. Yeah. So it's, it's a really unanswered question, and that's why in the current SPOT study, we've directly asked people whether they would be interested in and whether they would donate under different scenarios. Yeah, and so we'll be able to feed that results back into the blood services, I'm thinking. It is nuanced, and um, hence why it's a fascinating policy question. I think some of those options for the future have to consider those trade-offs of simplicity versus complexity. Um, but yeah, it's, it's complex, and... Um, just requires more data, more corridor, um, and perhaps we all get to a place where, in fact, um, we reach a, a point where we don't talk about individual acts or, or, or sexualities or genders. We have just a blanket, simple rule for everyone and accept that that will entail a small incremental increase in risk to recipients, but we're still talking maybe one in five million, you know. And that is the difficult trade-offs that we in public health have to, have to do, as we all know with the COVID experiment, right? 
you know, these are always imperfect. Some of us love the intervention, some of us hate them, we find them inconvenient, but they're there for our protection, and it's always this trade-off, yeah. Come on.